Well, when I was a, a young boy, I, uh, I played peewee football. I have so many more pictures of me to show, I should bring them all up. <laughs> what a stud. <laughs> well, all of my friends uh, played football, and so I decided to join. And to this day, I remember the first time I put my helmet on. There was not much cushioning. It felt so hard on my head, but it was 1967, and in those days, helmets were pretty barren. I'll also never forget the first game we played. I was a defensive end, and the opposing team was awfully big. They were scary looking, and they ran a play right over the top of me. It really hurt, and I guess due to the subsequent concussion and fear, I gave up playing, but that did not stop my love of the game. As a child, I watched and loved watching the Dallas Cowboys in the era when Dandy Don Meredith and Roger Staubach were quarterbacks, and Tom Landry, that classic fellow in his suit and tie, was coaching on the sidelines wearing his fedora. You remember those days? And although that was years ago, I remain a huge college football fan. I love the hype, the pageantry, the gifted players, the rivalries, and when possible, sitting in a huge stadium. And I have to say that while I love the sport, watching my alma mater, UCLA, play stresses me out totally, especially when the game is close and I have no idea who's going to win. And as we're in the midst of the football season, a few days ago, something came to mind, an image. And I'd like you to picture this along with me, whether or not you play football or have ever been to a game or even like the sport. I'd like for you just to imagine something with me for a moment. Imagine you were a college football player. You're on the field, surrounded by your teammates. There are 100,000 fans cheering you and your team on. Sure, there are a few folks booing, but this is a home game, so mostly everybody's rooting for you. And as the game goes on, your team is losing. But back in your mind, in the vestiges of your mind, something tickles your memory and your motivation, and you begin to know something with absolute certainty. Your team's going to come back. You know the outcome of the game. You're going to win, even if it's challenging at the moment. Your team's going to make it. Everyone will be cheering for you when the game is done. This last Tuesday was All Saints Day, as I wrote about in this week's Mountaineer. And for Christians across many traditions, it's a day of celebration and has been since the ninth century. And while some define saints as super exceptional people who have done extraordinary, even miraculous things, and are now in heaven, lots of people, including Scripture itself, have a broader definition of what a saint is. A saint is a person living or dead who has done his or her darndest to be faithful in his or her walk with Jesus. That's a saint. Many saints are living presence right now all around us. Paul in his letters referred to living followers of Jesus in prison as saints. He described a woman named Lydia in the same way. 
when he wrote a letter to the Christians in Rome, he referred to them as all you saints living in Rome. In essence, Paul referred to saints as people of faith struggling to do their best to follow Jesus through all kinds of hardships and in the midst of obstacles. And saints living 2,000 years ago and saints living right now share the same thing. They're faithful followers of Jesus who go about the work of spreading the story of Jesus, serving, touching the lives of others, and most of all, loving. And everything else they let go of. Saints are ordinary people who respond to folks at home, in school, and work, or in their community who are hurting or suffering or having a hard time. Think back in your own life to those times in which your motivation was idle, your emotions were dead, your sense of direction was stalled, moments in which you may have felt powerless or numb or confused as to what to do next. But the amazing thing for most of us is that when we have been in such a state, inevitably someone has come along and said, done, or offered just something that had just the right spark in it to be helpful to us at that time. Just think for a moment and reflect back on your life and think about the countless people that have entered it at the right time when you needed it the most and helped you in some way, shape, or form. Whether it was a parent, a friend, a sister, brother, cousin, therapist, doctor, pastor, or a complete stranger, Every one of us has benefited from the help of someone around us. It's important to remember that sainthood is not about perfection. It's about faithfulness, service, and as I mentioned before, it is most of all, all about love. As we're celebrating All Saints this week, today, perhaps, is a day for us to remember to give thanks for the saints, both living and dead, who have helped us. And I invite you to think about the saints that have been in your life. And I invite you to think about even calling one of your saints today and thanking them for that word, that gesture that helped when you needed it. Remember earlier I asked you to imagine being on a football field as a player with 100,000 fans cheering you on. I'd like to add to that image. Those 100,000 fans are the saints in heaven cheering for you and cheering for me right now. They are cheering regardless of what the score is in our lives. Whether we feel like we're winning or losing, we're feeling overwhelmed by something or someone, that cheer goes on. The saints are rooting for us. This is why Paul wrote, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The saints in heaven. And so, Paul writes, let us persevere. Here Paul uses an image of a cloud to try and describe how many saints in heaven are rooting for us. And as I think about it, I believe that there are two encouraging ideas we can take from this. And as we live in this messed up time of ours in which love seems so far from the lives of so many people, especially people of faith. First, we're not alone ever. Heaven is cheering for us. That alone is a takeaway for today. Heaven is cheering for me. I want you to think about it. All the saints are cheering for me. Keep at it. 
But there's more to this message. This verse from Hebrews, Hebrews about the cloud of witnesses and Scripture tells us something else that we need to pay attention to. We're headed for heaven. Even if the score looks bad, even if it appears we're going to lose the game, we're headed for heaven itself. It is our destiny. That's the Easter message. It's the Christmas message. It is the life message that we need to take in each and every day so we can persevere in loving in a world that doesn't appreciate love and doesn't like Christians that love, castigates Christians that love. No, you got to be against somebody. you got to castigate. you got to throw anger. you got to dispose of. No, no, no. The way is love. You've got to persevere in it, even, the way, even though the world and many Christians say, no, that's not the way. Heaven is our destiny, and as this is the case with the saints of heaven cheering us on, God invites us to keep at it, to keep on going, and to make a difference in this life for Jesus by loving people no matter how things look, appear, or feel at the moment. It's going to be okay. More than okay. This life is... So I thought for this morning, even though it's November, I want to explore Easter with you. But more specifically, I want to explore heaven with you. Now, while Scripture speaks a lot about heaven, some of what I will get into, it's important for me to say that there's a ton of mystery about heaven. There are a lot of unanswered questions that only God's going to be able to answer one day. I am more than okay with all the unknowns and all the mystery. I know where I'm headed. I don't know necessarily what it's going to be like, but I know it. And God reminds us not to worry about it, to trust instead. You know, when you get into questions about life after death and eternity, there's so many views about Jesus' second coming. There's so many ideas about heaven on earth. People write about rapture, yes rapture, no rapture, rapture in the middle, rapture at the end, rapture yesterday, rapture tomorrow. It all doesn't matter. It's mystery. How things unfold. End times. A whole lot more. All this mystery. All these unknowns. All these viewpoints. Fine. But just trust we're headed to heaven. Cut through all of that. There's some things we can trust about heaven. And I just want to share a few this morning. I know we're going to move into a holiday season in several weeks, and I am acutely aware that for some of you, you're desperately missing lifelong partners. I grieve with you and for you. Some of you today are missing friends. You may be missing a person who uniquely understood you, who made you laugh or was able to offer you some life-giving perspective through hard times. I miss my friend and mentor, the Reverend David Jones, who taught me so much. I miss so many other friends who I can't pick up the phone and call. You know what this is about. I miss my first bishop, Bishop Doug, an extraordinary guy who took him what he did very seriously, but never himself, which is why he wore a conehead to a bishop's meeting once, <laughs> to remind the bishops to get over themselves, to go out and do the business of love. I miss Bobby, my grandmother, who introduced me to the world of Winnie the Pooh. I miss my parents, 
I miss so many people in heaven that have been part of all the parishes that I've served and I've buried. And I know many of you are missing people too today. So as we see the holiday season on the horizon, I want to give you a message of hope and encouragement about your missing. I want to give you a message I hope gives you some sustenance, gives you some assurance and comfort. But I also want to just briefly talk about what we can be sure of of heaven for another reason. And that is because so much is off track this day. So many people are way, way off track. Venom and anger. and Where's the love of Jesus? Come on, people. Where, what are people doing? So for those of us that are sensitive to that and feel sad about that, we need some encouragement to keep going. So let's take a look at what our scriptures have to say to us about what happens after this life and why that's relevant. Well, very simply, we need to trust there's life after death. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, writes, Christ died, he was buried, and three days later he appeared to, to Peter. And Paul writes, then he appeared to all the apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 people. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to the apostles. And Paul writes, last of all, Jesus appeared to me. This is in a letter he wrote to the people of Corinth. He wasn't pulling their chain. He was telling them the truth of his experience. It's here through his own personal experience that writes that Jesus demonstrated that there's life after death. He encountered the risen Lord. There was eyewitness testimony, Paul writes. Hundreds of people, in fact. I love what this attorney who happens to be a Christian a trial attorney writes about this little part of Paul's letter. I love what he writes. He writes, I've covered scores of trials. I've never had a trial with 500 witnesses. To put this in perspective, if I were to call each one of those 500 witnesses and ask questions about what they saw for 15 minutes each, and I went around the clock without a break, it would take me from breakfast Monday all the way until dinner on Friday to hear it all. 24 hours. And what Paul is saying in his letter is that there are at least, at least 129 hours of eyewitness testimony. Then there's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in the Gospel of John. Jesus, Jesus' his friend Lazarus and died, was put in a tomb. His friends are grief-stricken. Jesus shows up days later. But Jesus comes along and brings his friend back to life. And it's through this story that Jesus makes an astonishing claim. Jesus says there's life after death. It's not a fantasy. It's not, it's not make-believe. It's not wishful thinking. And I'm going to prove this to you by bringing Lazarus back to life. And he did. Jesus wanted to assure his followers over and over again that there's life after death. It's why he said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will live even though you die. And even though you die, you will live with me. But in addition to there being life after death, Scripture makes it clear that heaven exists. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of references to this in Scripture. Book of Genesis, God talks about creating the heaven and the earth. Job, in the midst of his torment, says, I know there's someone in heaven. 
In the book of Hebrews, I've already mentioned, we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And not only does heaven exist, but the Bible suggests that heaven is a place. Now, the word place is tricky because our image of place is very limited by our five senses. So I know when heaven's referred to as a place, it's, 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 it's more than we can possibly even conceive. The place, the word place is used to be helpful to us with our very limited thinking. But in heaven, heaven is, in, in Scripture, heaven is described as a dwelling place of God where we will find all the saints who have died. John and Jesus, John and, and Jesus in John's gospel says, do not be worried and upset. Believe in God. Believe also in me. There are many rooms in my Father's house, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will take you to that place. Heaven is a place, whatever that means. I think it's a place that's all around us right now and, in fact, within us. In many spots in the Bible, heaven is referred to as up. Well, yes, but what does up really mean? Up is beyond our capacity to understand. It's a great mystery. It's more than looking up. Although in Scripture, Luke describes that Jesus would be taken up to heaven. Book of Acts, people watch Jesus being taken up to heaven. In the Gospel of Matthew, the angel of the Lord comes down from heaven. So whatever heaven is, it's clear that it's a place. And again, I think Scripture lets us know it's all around us right now. We just can't see it. The presence of God is not far away. It's right here. It's here. And where God is is where heaven is. So it's here. And although we don't know exactly what heaven is like, Scripture, through human words, offers us some glimpses, again, because of our limited ability to perceive human language. The book of Revelation suggests there's light and water and trees and fruit. A place where there are no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. It's described as a beautiful place. Jesus describes it as a paradise. Scripture even says that heaven is a place where there are people from every race and nation. So much for racism and anti-Semitism. A place where there is singing and worship and freedom from pain and sorrow and sadness. Heaven is described as wonderful and joyful. Where we will have bodies, emotions, and able to interact with people we love. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, writes, Human beings have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, and fish another. And then there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The beauty that belongs to the heavenly bodies is different from the beauty that belongs to the earthly bodies. For what is mortal must be changed into what is immortal. In these verses, Paul is saying that you and I, in eternity, will have bodies, whatever that means although they will be drastically different, thank God, from the ones we have right now. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says to people in chapter 8, many will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all over the place there's this, there's this reference that we're going to be and recognize people who have gone before us. One person writes in heaven, we're going to have uninterrupted quality and fellowship and community and 
No more loneliness, no more isolation, no more misunderstanding, none of it, not in heaven. There'll be no more remorse, no regret, no more strained consciousness. We'll be learning and growing and, and discovering and risking and progressing and serving in ways that are unimaginable. And aside from my conviction and more, and more importantly, the testimony of Scripture and of hundreds of people that heaven exists and we're headed there, we're not supposed to rush to get there. This life is that. Life is the most precious gift there is, and God wants us to be here. God does not want us to kill ourselves to get to heaven. God does not want us to sit idly by and just wait for a better day to come. God wants us to get to work in the work of loving now. That's how God spreads love, us. So I believe despite all the unknowns, God has given us the assurance of heaven so that we will be people of hope and optimism and love and can remain encouraged in the midst of loss and hard times. And not only encouraged, but to remember where we're headed, but in the meantime, we're surrounded by a vast cheering section. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. It's astonishing. I have just part of it up here, but it's a much longer quote, which I'm going to share. He wrote, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. He goes on to write, he said, the apostles themselves, the great people of the Middle Ages, the English who abolished the slave trade, all who left their mark on earth did so precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians, and this is so relevant today, it's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. And I want to close with a story that's important to me. I probably have shared it in other settings or sermons, but it's, it's marvelous and it's short. 1952, there was a woman named Florence Chadwick. She made an attempt to swim from Catalina Island to the California shore. And for those of you who know, it's about 20 miles. The water is frigid, full of sharks, too. Well, the day she tried it, it was a foggy and chilly day, water obviously very cold. As she left Catalina, boats traveled alongside her, filled with people who were cheering her on. Go, 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 Florence. However, Florence became physically and emotionally exhausted, and she gave up. She was pulled quickly from the water. Florence did not know at the time that she was pulled from the water. She was less than half a mile from the shore. At a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. Had I been able to see the shore, I would have gone on and I would have made it. I relate to her story. See, we like Florence spend many days in the fog, don't we? Problems, worries, financial concerns, decimated relationships, death of people we love, rapid change, violence, people who have seemingly lost it 
leaders that are ego-filled ego and self-serving, a whole bunch of them. Fog of mental and physical health. Fog that comes from a world in a state of upheaval. The fog that comes from tough stuff. As one person said, life is joyful and wonderful, but it's just plain hard. It is. And people of faith throughout the ages receive their strength not only through Jesus, but through the recognition that a safe shore lies ahead. Heaven was ahead for them, and it is for you and me as followers of Christ. Heaven was their reference point. Let it be ours. In the meantime, let's embrace the words of St. Paul. Paul writes, forgetting what is behind, such great advice in them. Straining toward what is ahead, I press on. Through it all, I press on toward the goal that God has called me heavenward. Heaven is real. Believe it. Trust it. Live as if you have confidence in it. And as we strive day in and day out, find those quiet spots and listen. Can you hear the cheers cheering for you and me? And know this, that all those you love who have died are there. And one day we will join them. But in the meantime, we have a hell of a lot of work to do. With God guiding us every step of the way. So let's do the business of loving. Not popular, but let's do it. Amen.